Welcome to the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast, where we bring you amazing guests on the cutting edge of science, health, and business each week to share strategies that you can use to get the breakthrough you're looking for in your life. I'm your host, Dr. Nevada Gray. Joining me is my co-host, Chris Donahue. We're glad that you're joining us today. If you are enjoying our podcast, we invite you to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. Today's episode is sponsored by the Paleo Pharmacist in the Keto Course. Have you ever wanted to learn about the ketogenic diet and how to implement a properly formulated ketogenic diet into your lifestyle? The Keto Course includes instant 30-day access to a one-hour, one-on-one consultation, a month of unlimited email support, over 75 amazing videos, and printable 14-day meal plans, along with grocery lists that will speed up your weight loss and help break stalls. To learn more, see our show notes. The views expressed on the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast are the opinions of the hosts and guests and are not to be taken as medical advice, as the hosts and guests do not provide medical care. Information is provided for educational purposes only. You should consult your medical provider in relation to your own personal health and prior to making any changes in your diet and fitness. Michelle Hearn is a registered and licensed dietitian with 11 years of experience as a clinical acute care dietitian, lead dietitian in psychiatric care, and outpatient dietitian. Michelle is an avid endurance athlete. She has qualified for the Boston Marathon 12 times, and she is currently training for her first ultramarathon. While practicing inpatient and outpatient care in the hospital setting, Michelle discovered a disheartening connection between the high carbohydrate, low fat, sugar in moderation, nutrition guidelines she was required to teach, and the rapidly declining health of her patients. In 2019, Michelle decided to follow a low carbohydrate, high animal protein diet to see if it would alleviate severe muscle pain she was experiencing. Not only was her muscle pain gone in a matter of weeks, her decades of anxiety began to fade. After reviewing the extensive clinical trials on a low-carbohydrate diet, she knew she had to spread the word about this transformative way of eating. Michelle is currently writing a book, The Dietitian's Dilemma, detailing how the current nutrition guidelines came into existence and advocating a low-carbohydrate, animal-based way of eating as an option for individuals struggling with diabetes, mental disorders, eating disorders, sarcopenia, and heart disease. You can follow Michelle on Instagram at run, eat, meet, repeat. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, please subscribe and leave us a review and share with a friend who may find value. Podcast, how are you doing today? I am great. Thank you so much for having me on. So it's a pleasure to have you here. I'm very excited about your new upcoming book and all of the amazing content that you've been putting out on your Instagram and on Twitter regarding health and nutrition. And I was just wondering if you could start by sharing your journey with our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So 
Um, yeah, my journey begins. I was born and raised right outside of Dallas, Texas in Plano. I'm the youngest of four girls. I have uh, three older sisters. And at the age of 12, I was diagnosed with a pretty serious eating disorder. Um, I had anorexia and I, I went into inpatient treatment at that time. I was there for two months. Uh, when I went into treatment, I was almost five feet tall, so about a little over 4'11", and I weighed 57 and a half pounds. So for your um, you know, health-minded listeners, my BMI was 11.7. I remember the doctor telling my parents that I had about a 10% chance of survival. Like it was, it was not good. My, I was having heart arrhythmias. My kidneys were shutting down. Um, you know, I had almost no body fat. Uh, and I was really, you know, I was obviously really scared. And I was, <laughs> I was in the treatment center for two months. I was immediately put on a 24-hour tube feeding system. And, you know, if anybody, you know, that listens to this podcast has ever struggled with an eating disorder, certainly at that time I was very depressed, super anxious. And I remember hearing, you know, when the doctor said that, when I heard him say that to my parents, you know, my first reaction was actually relief, you know, like, oh my goodness, I don't, I'm not going to have to suffer much longer, you know? And I was, as an adult now thinking back on that, that's, you know, that's, that's sad. That's hard. And obviously, you know, I, I was able to recover. Um, went home, went through, went through high school. And as I was able to recover, I really wanted to play sports. I, I started to gain some weight and feel better. And I played soccer when I was much younger. And so I tried out for the basketball team and I got cut. Um, it was pretty, pretty short again, you know, and I grew up in Texas, lots of, lots of athletes there. And so the coach said, well, you can do PE. And I was like, oh, I really don't want to do PE. And like, well, you could try this running thing. And I had no idea what this running thing was. And the coach didn't know much about it either, but it was cross country. And I just fell in love with running. Like it became, you know, you could, we got to explore, we got to, you know, run off campus. And where I went to school, ninth and 10th grade was a separate building than 11th and 12th grade. So I got to go run with the juniors and seniors. And I thought that was pretty cool. And so, um, yeah, and, you know, I became really interested in nutrition because I found that the more I fueled my body, you know, the better I could run. And I started to find I had quite the knack for running. Um, when I was a sophomore, I won the, the Texas State Championship and I started getting some scholarship offers. But unfortunately, you know, I got with a club coach my junior year and he was really focused on like, hey, you know, if you're leaner, you can run faster. And at that time, I changed what I was eating. I went to a, a vegetarian diet. You know, I'd heard if I cut out meat and just eat a lot of these grains that I could lose some weight and get faster. And it worked. I, I lost about 10 pounds and I was running. I was ranked fourth in the U.S. at one point for my age group. But then it all kind of came crashing down. I ended up um, having a really sharp pain in my hip my senior year of high school that was a, a fractured my pubis ramus bone ended up going and getting a DEXA bone density scan and found out at the age of 18, I had osteoporosis in my spine and osteopenia in both hips. So as you can imagine, all scholarship offers were off the table. Uh, I did end up walking on to the University of Arkansas. I got to run there for two years, but I had another really bad stress fracture my um, sophomore year. So that you know effectively ended my college running career. But I, I knew nutrition was important and I, I really wanted to, to help people. And I was kind of like deciding like, well, what do I want to do next? You know, so I decided to pursue becoming a registered dietitian. Initially, my goal was that I would work with young people that have eating disorders. That's quite a journey and a lot for a young person to go through. And I was just wondering if 
you can talk a little bit more about eating disorders because so many people are struggling or may have a family member that's struggling. Could you give us kind of a lay of the land of what an eating disorder looks like and uh, treatment and struggles that a, a patient may experience? Gosh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there's definitely different kinds of eating disorders. You know, there's you know, anorexia, which I, which I had, which is characterized by, you know, very, very low body weight, wanting to keep your body weight low, um, either restricting, over-exercising, um, you know, there's bulimia where you're, you're, you know, you're binging and purging. There's, you know, binge eating disorder where you're tend to be binging, but you're not actually, you know, you're not purging. Um, there's orthorexia where you're restricting, or you um, become almost obsessed with certain, um, they call it like the overly healthy foods. And there's all different types, but kind of what it comes down to is you have a really dysfunctional relationship with food. And for me, you know, certainly as a very young person, there were things going on in my home and in my family that were really challenging. And, you know, you turn to food. It's basically a source of, of comfort and control, right? If I'm not eating, then I'm in control of something. And a lot of times, especially if you're you're losing weight or if you had any weight to lose, you're going to get some positive feedback. Like, oh my gosh, you know, I had people tell me like, wow, you look really great. You look so fast, you know, you're doing so great. And so you, it's, it becomes this cycle, right? And unfortunately, you know, we really don't, there's so much pressure, right, on, on women and certainly on men. You know, in my book, we're going to talk about you know, it's not just, there's kind of this stereotype that like, oh, someone with an eating disorder is this emaciated white female. But we know that, you know, eating disorders across all ethnicities, all races, you know, all ages, you know, um, you know, straight people, uh, gay people, transgender people. And so, you know, for me, what treatment was, you know, I was put into a, a place, you know, states away from my house, away from my family, it was pretty scary and, and terrible. But, you know, it saved my life. So I'm certainly grateful for that. But, you know, the goal, I would say, of overcoming and working through an eating disorder is twofold. One is to be able to learn how to fuel your body in a way that's going to, you know, align with human physiology. It's going to give you the nutrients, the protein, the saturated fat you need. And two, you're going to need to develop some uh, emotional management skills. How can I cope with um, what drove me to, to either restrict or to binge in the first place? You know, I've said on other podcasts that, I have a great relationship now with both my parents, but a lot of people nowadays aren't really taught how to manage stress. You know, I knew as a young person growing up, you know, if my mom was stressed, you know, she didn't say like, oh, goodness, Michelle, you know, I'm really stressed. I'm going to write in a journal and then go for a walk. You know, it was just like fights and craziness. So it's learning how to how, how do we deal with stress and how do we manage stress? And one thing um, that we're learning is the foods that we put in our body really matter when it comes to that as well. Um, but yeah, I guess the one other thing I'd want to say is I, if you've never struggled with an eating disorder, it's, it controls everything you do. I mean, if I, every thought you have, you know, I was constantly thinking about food. You're constantly thinking, analyzing, overanalyzing. Should I eat this? Should I not eat that? Does that have enough calories? Does that have too many calories? How am I going to feel? Am I going to be bloated? Am I going like, it, it, it for many people and certainly for myself included it, it paralyzes you it keeps you from being able to have a job or to have friends or to function in society and it's also very embarrassing you know it can be something really difficult and challenging to talk about so and then there's also the other end of the spectrum so you have the under nutrition where you're restricting and then you also have the over 
nutrition where you're binging uh, due to food addiction, which has become a very hot topic lately, as many people are struggling, especially in our current times, having hobbies taken away or activities that they enjoy and spending more time at home, they're using food to kind of fuel those pathways that other activities were uh, kind of helping them manage. And I was just wondering if you could speak to the state of food addiction and what some of the current science is showing us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, and and when I was going through school to be a dietitian and all throughout my, um, you know, practice, you know, practicing 11 years of healthcare, I, when we, when the idea of like carbohydrate addiction or sugar addiction came up, it was immediately squashed. It was like, no, this doesn't have, this isn't true. It's all about moderation. It's all about balance. And the more I like dove into the research and the more I listened to people's stories, you know, what I found is that carbohydrate and sugar addiction are very real. And we have show that, you know, it follows you know, carbohydrates and sugar specifically can can do the same things that like things like alcohol and even, you know, drugs like cocaine and, and heroin can do. They're lighting up those same pathways. They're, they're causing the neurotransmitter glutamate to go really, really high, which actually um, what that does is it prevents your brain from engaging in neuroplasticity and dealing with stress. So let's say, you know, you're super stressed out. We're dealing with the pandemic and you, you, you want to eat a donut. All right. So you have the sugar. Well, it changes the neurotransmitters in your brain, and now it's going to prevent you from coping with stress. So you had this to, to help with the stress, and now you're eating something that's going to prevent from stress. And then we know from the physiology standpoint, when you eat sugars and carbohydrates, you're going to have that blood sugar spike and then crash. And when you have that crash, you have carbohydrate cravings, right? So it, it, it sets you up. It's this really, really vicious cycle. And so, you know, unfortunately, my profession has told patients, has basically blamed the patient, like, you know, you're lazy, you just need to stop eating so much, you need to moderate, where in reality, a lot of people aren't able to moderate, you know, a sugar addiction, carbohydrate addiction is very real. And if you're somebody who struggles with with that, I mean, I hope you hear, I hope you hear me. And I'm so sorry that, that, you know, our, our health profession hasn't hasn't really validated and said, Hey, I hear you. This isn't, you know, this is a real thing. And we need to start treating it like a real thing. And I think when people, you know, when I've talked to people about that, they're like, oh my gosh, thank you. You know, nobody's actually actually told me like, this is a problem and this is a, a real thing. Um, and so just like any other addiction, like if you, are, if you have a true addiction where you're not able to moderate, you know, we don't ask people to moderate alcohol when they're alcoholics. And we certainly don't ask people to moderate, um, you know, most you know, difficult, like uh, addicting drugs. So why we would ever ask somebody to moderate sugar and carbohydrates when they're proven over and over again, they can't do is, is well, I know why we do it <laughs> because there's, there's a lot of money in that, but it's not, it's not for patient health is I guess is what I should say. Yes. And that's a very frustrating aspect of patient going, you know, to their doctor to get help for something and doing everything they can with working with what they know and the education level that they have, and then going back and being blamed for gaining weight and not being successful or worsening of a metabolic health. And one of the things that I find so inspiring about you is that you decided to take that leap of faith and change your career in the middle uh, of a pandemic to truly pursue your passion. And I was just wondering if if you could kind of speak to 
what was behind your decision uh, to do that and uh, how it's been going for you? Yeah, you know, it's been a wild year. If you had told me uh, last year around this time what would transpire, I would have told you that was a weird dream you had. Um, so what happened? I guess I should have back up a little bit. You know, I'm, I've done 12 marathons, you know, qualified for Boston 12 times, and it was my goal to qualify for the Olympic trials. And so um, I run a 254, you have to run under 245. And so as I was training for a marathon in 2019, you know, still working in healthcare, I was following a really high carbohydrate diet. You know, I always thought like as an athlete, as an endurance athlete, I need all these carbohydrates, but I was becoming unusually sore. And as an athlete, you know, you're used to being sore, but sore to the point where it would take me two or three days to recover from workouts. And it went from that, you know, I started to worry like, oh my gosh, like, what am I going to do? And so I reached out to two different sports dietitians and let them know what I was doing. And they both said, hey, you know what? You need more carbohydrates. I was eating 350 grams. They said, you need 400, you need 500. And so, you know, I did what I thought I was supposed to do, ate 500 grams of carbohydrates. And I went out for a run and I went two miles in and I started having cold sweats. I was waking up in the middle of the night with symptoms. And, you know, this time I'm working in a hospital in healthcare and it's, you know, it's very challenging. And so I wasn't sleeping. And so finally, kind of the come to Jesus tipping point was I woke up in the at 2 a.m. My muscles were spasming. Everything hurt. I'd only run maybe two or three miles the day before. Drove to 7-Eleven, got a bunch of ice, put it in the bathtub. It's three in the morning. I'm sitting in an ice bath. And uh, my, my wife comes in and says, like, hey, you know, maybe we should do something differently. And that's when I'm like, all right, I'm not going to run. This is ridiculous. I, I'm too old. At that time, I'm 30, I was 36. I'm 37 now. And so I was like, well, if I'm not running, then why don't I reduce my carbohydrate intake? You know, I, I intuitively knew that a lot of a lot of carbohydrates didn't make me feel great. So, so I decided I would follow a, a ketogenic diet and then I did some research and, um, discovered this high meat way of eating known as the carnivore diet. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. At first I thought it was nuts, you know, it was just meat and no vegetables. You know, as a dietitian, I'm always told you need all this fiber and all this vegetables, but I was in so much pain, you know, and I got online, I did some research and I saw all these women following this way of eating. And they just, they, I can't tell you, they just looked, their skin was great. They looked like they had good energy. And at that time they looked and they seemed pretty much the opposite of what I was. And so I decided, well, I'll do this for 30 days. I'm just going to eat meat and fat and see how I feel. Cause I'm not going to run like what, what will happen. And, um, you know, having the eating disorder background, you know, I totally validate that a lot of people say, well, that seems restrictive. That seems eating disordered. My wife, wanted nothing to do with this. She was very anti this, but she said, Hey, you're an adult. You can do it if you feel you want to. And three weeks into this way of eating, you know, my wife asked me to come and sit down and she said, you know, I don't know if I like this yet, but this is the best your anxiety has been in 11 years, like the entire time I've known you and my muscle pain had disappeared. And I just attributed it to, well, I'm not running. So of course, but I also noticed during work, like I felt calm. I felt really, you know, I wasn't hungry. And so I just decided like, you know, I had energy. Well, I'm going to go for a run just for fun. I'm not going to ever race again. And so I went for a eight mile run and I felt amazing. And at that point I started to like all the wheels in my head were turning. Like has everything I've ever been taught about nutrition wrong? Do we need all these grains? Are we actually causing harm to our patients with all these grains? Like if my own health was restored this way, my anxiety, my, my, my decades long anxiety is, is gone. 
what, what am I doing? What am I doing in healthcare? And so, of course, you know, I got super excited and I'm like, oh, everyone is going to be so excited to hear all these great things, you know. And, um, you know, unfortunately, there's so much, there's a lot of resistance, you know, the Academy of Nutrition, the governing board of dietetics is sponsored by um, General Mills, PepsiCo, Frito-Lay, and all my dietitian co-workers were just, you know, kind of thought I was a, a little bit nuts. Uh, very different, you know, I'm there in, mor in the morning eating beef, they're eating bagels. But at that point, I decided like, well, I'm going to start writing, you know, I'm going to start writing a book. I want to get, I want to see what the, what does the research say about low carbohydrates? And, and I wanted to make sure I could speak to, to things I was really comfortable with. Like what disease states have I seen in my career? You know, diabetes, eating disorders. I've worked in two different psychiatric hospitals. So mental disorders, uh, sarcopenia. We see so many elderly people that are um, very, very under muscled and overweight and certainly heart disease. And yeah, and so that was, you know, that was kind of the journey into like how I started this process. And then, you know, the transition out, you know, during, um, during COVID, I lost all of my dietitian hours, my guaranteed hours. And so I was put into our call center where patients call in to get, you know, to order food. So for eight hours a day, five days a week, you know, I had diabetics calling in to order chocolate cake and caramel macchiatos and just take insulin. And I just, it, it started to really wear on me because like once you've been on the other side, you know, of health and I wasn't allowed to give any nutrition education, you know, I was just a call center representative. I, I was like, I can no longer be a part of this process. Like I'm not able to change this from within, right? There's just too much power. There's too much money. There's too much resistance. You know, I wasn't even allowed to talk low carb diets to our um, diabetic patients. You know, I was told they can do that on their own time. Your only goal is a acute care is just Make sure they have protein and calories. Doesn't matter how much sugar. Doesn't matter, to, you know, you know, just chart insurance reimbursement. And so it was a difficult decision, and I absolutely understand. I've had over two dozen dietitians reach out to me. I understand staying because it's, um, you know, you go through this really intense schooling and internship, and I have student loans that I'll be paying for a long time, and you finally are making a paycheck. That's it's a great hourly rate. And, you know, I, when I, when I decided to leave and take a different job, I mean, I made 30 to 40% of what I did in healthcare, but, um, yeah, there came a point where I could no longer, I could no longer stay because I felt like I was actually contributing to the problem. And it, it was almost as if it's a, a self betrayal to your purpose and, and to what you believe in. And I was just wondering, you're writing an amazing book right now. I can attest, uh, that this book is amazing, everybody. <laughs> so I'm wondering, what are some of the misconceptions that you've found in nutrition? Uh, you, you have chapters on eating disorders and mental illness, as well as heart disease and cholesterol. And I was just wondering if we could kind of peel back some of the layers, um, and we have a layperson audience, um, for some of what these misconceptions are and what you found in your research. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, and I'll maybe just go kind of chapter by chapter, but I I thought of one thing. I think, um, you know, with eating disorders, you know, we know that eating disorders have a very high mortality rate and relapse rate, right? Anorexia is the highest uh, mortality rate of any psychiatric disorder, meaning more people die of anorexia, you know, than um, any other psychiatric disorder, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia. And when I was doing my research, I also noticed that it wasn't just that people died of anorexia um, 
because of the low weight, you know, over 30% committed suicide. And I, and that's not, that's a common, you know, and like I, like I shared in the very beginning of this, I remember when the doctor told my parents that, you know, she only has a 10% chance to survive. My first reaction wasn't, oh no, it was like, oh, thank God, like this is almost over. So it's, it's a pretty terrible thing. So one thing I think the misconception, you know, we treat all, we treat all disorders, we treat all disease states the same. We treat all, all, we treat diabetes, we treat binge eating disorder, we treat anorexia, we treat our heart disease with the standard, um, the standard American guidelines, the nutrition guidelines. And to me, that's, that's ridiculous. Well, first of all, the, the nutrition guidelines, you know, they promote a very carbohydrate heavy, um, low, relatively low in protein, very low in saturated fat. And those, those guidelines are going to keep someone with type two diabetes sick. They're going to keep somebody, you know, carbohydrates, diabetes, type two diabetes is a disease where your body can no longer utilize and process carbohydrates. I've used the example of, you know, <laughs> It's like your house is fire, your house is inflamed, carbohydrates are causing inflammation. It does not make sense for someone with type 2 diabetes to continue to take carbohydrates, you know, have the flames and then try to dose it out with insulin. It's like just stop setting your house on fire. They're, the biggest misconception I've seen in healthcare is that we need carbohydrates and we need them to be 50 to 60% of our diet. That is absolutely ridiculous. Carbohydrates are non-essential. You, you don't need any to survive. And I've even asked dietitians, you know, I've said, hey, how many carbohydrates do you need to survive? And many will give you a percentage. It's like, no, you don't need any. So, yeah, those would be the probably the biggest misconception. And then for someone that has like binge eating disorder or bulimia, you know, even anorexia, um, there's a in, there's a, entire books about intuitive eating saying you need to be able to let all foods fit. You know, it, it's a victory if you can eat these cookies or this cake and, you know, but and I, I realize that sounds nice. That sounds beautiful in theory. You know, you've been restricting and you've been over um, exercising. But in reality, certain foods, I mean, all foods have um, physiological consequences. And when you eat something, let's say we ask someone who's struggling with a binge eating disorder to, okay, try to, you know, eat a donut. It's okay. That can set them off. So I, there's, once again, this whole all foods can fit thing, I think causes way, way more damage than it does actually help people. And, um, you know, for, for sarcopenia, we're trying to get our elderly people, there's an entire movement in this country to get, you know, people on a plant-based diet and plants, specifically plant proteins are not absorbed very well. And so we're telling our elderly people to eat less meat. And we, as an elderly person, you already don't absorb and utilize protein as well. So they need more protein. That's why we're seeing sarcopenia, which is just muscle wasting, you know, go through the roof. I have patients, 50s, 60s that can't even sit up because they're so fat and so under-muscled. And then for heart disease, we let people on the hospital, we put them on low-salt, low-fat diets. So someone with severe heart disease can order, you know, 140 grams of carbs and, you know, two or three cans of Coca-Cola. They can have sugar, but they can't have, um, you know, beef or butter. Where do you think the root of all these misconceptions uh, came from when we look back over the history of our guidelines since the 70s how how do you think uh, this just got into the mainstream and why do you think there's so much resistance to all of the emerging evidence especially for low carbohydrate diets yeah so you know there's there's a really it, it, there's a long history you know a whole chapter in my book and as I studied and um, 
researched it. it it's bizarre it's like wow this is, just sounds like something out of a movie i mean it starts with um you know major religious influence you know ellen white from who ended up starting the seven-day adventist church was very influential in the the dietetics movement and she believed that she uh, was getting visions from god and god was telling her that um meat was a flesh any type of meat product was was dangerous and was sinful and you know as crazy as, as that sounds that actually had a really big influence on what they called medical evangelism they actually did a lot of um they taught a lot of doctors they started um hospitals uh she actually trained harvey kellogg's who would go on to to make the kellogg's cornflake cereal at the same time you know we well you know as you know history would evolve we had world war ii happen trying to grow lots of crops for the soldiers so we ended up subsidizing those crops and certainly you know moving into the 70s we had ansel keys who was um you know a nutrition scientist and he was trying to show that high meat high fat intake over in various countries caused heart disease and he studied 22 countries and he noticed that some of the countries he was studying actually most of the countries he was studying it didn't fit his hypothesis. People who ate meat and fat, even actually the country where they ate the most meat and fat had the least heart disease. But it was kind of embarrassing. It was like, oh crap, this is going to not support my hypothesis. So what, what the ethical thing to do in this situation is to present all the data or just throw out your hypothesis. But what he did was he left out all the countries that didn't support his hypothesis. So instead of 22 countries, it was the seven country study. And then, and then, you know, at that, at that time, so you have this study that comes out that says meat and fat is really bad. And then we know that the sugar industry, a whole article in 2016 in the New York Times, the sugar industry actually paid um, two Harvard scientists to, po to publish studies saying that fat, yeah, look at this Ansel Keys, you know, research, fat is really bad, you know, and then kind of promote, but carbohydrates are fine and sugar is fine. And then, of course, there was the, um, in the 70s too, Japan ended up inventing um, high fructose corn syrup, the process to make that from corn. And of course, in the US, we have lots and lots of corn growing. And man, manufacturers loved high fructose corn syrup. Like all of a sudden, you had something that looked, tasted, whatever, like sugar, but it cost two thirds less. You know, if I'm building a house and someone's like, hey, we can do it for one third the cost. Like, heck yeah, right? And so high fructose corn syrup ended up being in everything because not, not only made things taste really sweet, it also extended the shelf life. Um, so you have this whole country that's really afraid of fat. And now we have all these products like, oh, hey, they're no fat, but they had a lot of sugar, you know, because they when you took the fat out, they tasted terrible. Um, yeah. And that's kind of got us where we are today, you know, and we know um, since the 1980s, the uh, Academy of Nutrition have several people that are vegan vegetarian um have that some from the the seven day adventists that continue to advocate this way of eating and so uh it's it's a big problem it's a really really big problem but it also makes so much money i cannot i cannot tell you guys how much money there is in um you know big sponsorships you know pepsico coca-cola um abbott you know that these companies are making a lot of money on keeping people sick. And that's why we're gonna stay, because we have the studies. I mean, they, they came out with a, a meta-analysis that said like, well, look, there's no reason to restrict saturated fat. And people asked me like, oh man, do you think they're gonna change the guidelines? No, there's, there's too much money and there's too much power. I don't think in my lifetime, maybe I'm wrong, hopefully I'm wrong, 
but I'm not sure they're going to actually shift the nutrition guidelines. So what I'm hoping is that, you know, people can take, take a minute and critically think and say, Hey, maybe, you know, if I'm not healthy or I'm not feeling good or I'm dealing with anxiety or I'm overweight, maybe there is a different way to eat to fuel my body. One of the things I truly appreciate in reading your book um, as you're writing it is that you speak about the different dietary options that are available for people. For example, you'll see a ton of antidotes for people having great success on zero-carbohydrate uh, diets, great success on keto diets, simple low-carb, simple paleo. And some people are doing well in vegetarian diets. And I was just wondering if you could walk us through some of the most popular uh, diets with some pros and cons that you found in your research. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I think that's key. I think you have to be very careful not to, um, you know, people can get really zealous and a little dogmatic when it comes to a certain approach. And I do believe that a foundation I, in my research, I found the foundation of um, animal based nutrition to be really powerful for most people. So certainly, you know, um, like an animal based zero carbohydrate diet, it's, all, it's also called like a carnivore diet where you're eating meat, animal products, you don't eat any vegetables. That can be amazing for people, especially if you're coming from, um, you're dealing with a lot of autoimmune issues, you know, maybe some joint inflammation. Um, and sometimes just to have your body reset, you know, as I shared earlier, like my health was a mess, you know, I was anxious, I was hurting everywhere. Um, and I was, re but relatively other than that, you know, it's not like I had hypertension or other issues, you know, that was, um, that was a, that was an option, you know, for me. So the pros for that certainly would, you're going to be, you know, really filling your body with a lot of, you know, protein and fats, you know, some of the cons is, you know, obviously you're, you're leaving out a lot of other things and over a long period of time, um, I've found talking to a lot of women or people who are really active that may not have the carbohydrates to either to support, you know, your, your exercise or, um, you know, your health and, and it works really well for some people, but with some people it, it does not. So that's kind of a good, um, but I think it can be a really good starting point if you're not sure where to start, because it's also really simple too, you know, very simple. Um, you know, ketogenic diet is also fantastic. We know uh, really low carbohydrate ketogenic diets can reverse diabetes, you know, relatively quickly. Um, that also, you know, incorporate some more carbohydrates. A lot of people who follow those types of diets will eat lots of vegetables for some people that have no autoimmune issues or no issues with vegetables. Um, you know, that's another really great option and that opens it up to more foods, you know, uh, let's see, just a standard low carb diet. I would say that's probably kind of what I do now. Um, as a, as an athlete, you know, I used to eat three, four, <laughs> 500 grams of carbs. Um, for me, doing this gives, you know, you have this steady, consistent energy, but it's flexible. Um, you know, I'm not hungry. It provides satiety, but it also gives you a little bit more options. You know, for me, I'm, my carbohydrate intakes between 50 and 100 grams a day. So it's a little bit higher. And for, you know, someone who's active, maybe someone who's young or someone who's rel relatively metabolically healthy, that can be a really, a really good thing. Um, what else? What was another? The paleo diet. Paleo. That's, a, that's a popular uh, diet. You see lots of books in the bookstore for. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a paleo type diet, that's, that's something that's really going to eliminate a lot of like the sugars and the grains. And, you know, a lot of those foods, I found a lot of people who do paleo is kind of similar to the ketogenic diet. Obviously it's not going to be necessarily as like the macronutrients, a ketogenic, strict ketogenic diet is really, really high in fat. 
where a paleo diet, you may not be as high in fat. Um, you know, I found that that can really help, you know, keep your blood sugar stable. That can really help with, um, kind of similar with reduced anxiety that can help with inflammation because you are removing some of the things like, like bread and gluten and starch. Um, I also think it's, it can, all of these things can be really good because they're eliminating processed foods and processed foods are, are, you know, a main culprit when it comes to, you know, increasing anxiety or causing those blood sugar spikes and crashes. And then what about a vegetarian diet or vegan diet um, for people that follow this lifestyle, whether it be for religious beliefs or they just feel better eating that way? Um, How uh, can they optimize their nutrition in your opinion? Yeah, you know, in my professional opinion, I, I think it's incredibly challenging to be a vegan or a vegetarian. Um, all the research that I've done, you're, you're really going to, getting EPA and DHA to really important essential fatty acids are, is incredibly difficult. I mean, B12 is only in the animal kingdom, right? Um, ultim- a lot of times, too, people on vegan or vegetarian diets are going to try to get calcium and iron from things like spinach and kale, and those just our body, there's something called bioavailability. What that means is what can my body actually use? I've used the example on other podcasts, you know, let's say spinach has six milligrams of iron. Well, if my body can only use 1.7% of that, that's not great. It would be like me writing you a check for a thousand dollars, but I have $17 in my bank account. Like that's not super helpful. So, you know, I would encourage somebody, you know, if you are, if you're really struggling and your health is really poor, you know, I would open up, I would, I would try to, I would encourage you to be open to adding some additional animal products. Certainly with the vegetarian, you know, you can do, um, you know, eggs, you can do cheese. Another major issue with veganism or vegetarianism is a lot of plants have anti-nutrients. What, what is that? You know, um, anti-nutrients is something that actually binds to minerals and pulls it out of the body. As a, you know, competitive runner, I was severely anemic in 2011 and I, it, the problem was I was eating so much oatmeal and so much, uh, you know, grains is that it was actually binding to the iron that I was taking and pulling it out of my body. So unfortunately, as a vegetarian or vegan, you have a couple of things working against you. You know, you're not getting the animal protein and then you're likely taking in a lot of things that are going to bind to your um, uh, to the food that you are eating. So but if that is if that is your goal and your, you know, if it's a religious belief or it's something that you genuinely want to try you know, I, I would absolutely encourage you to make sure you're doing everything to optimize the, the nutrition you can get. And how can you do that as a, as a vegan or vegetarian? We do know that soaking, sprouting things make them slightly more bioavailable and just being very, I mean, that's something you're going to have to be very diligent, likely going to need to supplement with B12, um, EPA and DHA. So I would make sure if that's the way you want to go, that you're really, you're really on it. I wouldn't do that haphazardly. Yes, and that's great advice because one thing that's often not talked about is the anti-nutrient profile in plants as well as that people can simply be allergic to them. I know I personally struggle with pollen allergy syndrome, also known as oral allergy syndrome. So I have a hard time eating an abundance of fruit and vegetables that are not pressure cooked. I cannot eat them raw uh, or else I start having an allergic reaction in my throat. So people do struggle uh, with fruits and vegetables. And that's why I love the idea of having options that are evidence-based that people can try uh, to optimize their nutrition, uh, depending on their individual health and their, um, 
you know, their preferences uh, for food and what they're uh, looking to achieve with their goals. And speaking of that, I find it so fascinating that you're also a distance runner, uh, that you run marathons. And I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit regarding your training and how you've been optimizing your own nutrition, especially going in uh, to your next race this upcoming Saturday. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I just real quick want to back up because you said that about vegetables. That is also probably the number one, other than excessive carbohydrates, probably the number one misconception is that everybody needs to eat as much vegetables as possible. You know, as much kale, as much spinach, juice it, blend it. Um, where in reality, you know, those vegetables tend to rarely irritate the gut, irritate, um, they don't have a lot of uh, available, bioavailable nutrition, and for many people can cause allergic reactions or inflammatory reactions. And certainly for people, um, a lot of people will take those, you know, take a salad or take vegetables, and they'll be eating that instead of something that could potentially be a lot more nutrient dense, like a, you know, cheese, egg, steak. But yeah, so I, uh, it was really wild, you know, when I when I decided I wanted to start running again, I was really excited and I didn't know like what was next, you know, and I I thought like, well, um, I've run marathons, like how how far can I go? You know, I, I was so thrilled to have my health back that I decided I wanted to try to train for an ultra marathon. You know, and an ultra marathon is defined as anything longer than twenty six point two miles. And so I connected with Zach Bitter, who is a fantastic runner, fantastic running coach. And yeah, I've been training the last four weeks, you know, about 80 miles a week. You know, in the beginning, it was probably 30 to 40 miles. Um, but yeah, some of my, my big runs last two weeks, uh, I had a 28-mile run one day. And the next day, I came back and did 16 miles up tempo, had 23 one day, 22 the next day. So I, I, it's been really, really awesome to do things that I just, I, I couldn't, I couldn't even imagine that I could do, you know, I love it. I think running is a kind of a beautiful metaphor to life. You know, it's, it's like, you just, you push yourself more and you kind of surprise yourself. Like I had no idea I could accomplish this. You know, I, a year ago, I couldn't run more than two or three miles without breaking out in a cold sweat. And now here I am able to run 20 plus miles. Right. And so um, and I've done that by by shifting how I eat. You know, I'm my main goal since this is so much longer, such so much longer of a race, is to I teach my body how to burn and utilize fat for fuel. And how do you do that? You know, you can't constantly be having an insulin response. And every time you eat carbohydrates, you get you know to some degree an insulin response. And so, um, yeah, you know, I I'm this Saturday I have a six hour race. The goal is whoever goes the furthest in six hours wins. Um, I'm really glad since it, all my other races this year have been canceled and they just let, let me know today that this one is not canceled. So I'm very happy about that. Um, nutrition wise, you know, I eat two to three times a day. My, um, baseline is, you know, beef or lamb. I eat about a pound and a half, sometimes two pounds of meat a day, um, split up into two to three servings. You know, I, I tend to do breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I don't eat before I run. I run in the morning. You know, we'll usually have just like beef and butter in the morning and then have some more beef in the afternoon, then have uh, beef and a little bit of liver, butter and some sourdough bread my wife makes in the evening. And that just is boring as all get out. But it's a uh, it's it's pretty beautiful. It's pretty wonderful. You know, certainly as my trainings increased, I am, um, you know, have a little bit of fruit, maybe have two pieces of sourdough a day. 
but you know, so much of my diet is this, this animal protein, this animal meat and a little bit of the liver, a lot of butter, a lot of fat, completely opposite of what I did, you know, a year plus ago. And I have felt great. I sleep great. I, um, it's really interesting because, you know, you think, you oh, I've got to have all these fruits and vegetables to get all my vitamins and minerals, but my body has never been healthier. You know, I'm getting so much um, iron, carnosine, carnitine, B12, zinc, um, very in the very absorbable form. And I'm not eating, you know, all those things that tend to bind and pull it out. And so, yeah, that's. That's what I'm doing. I am going to be using a sports nutrition um, drink during my race, and I will be talking more about that on my Instagram in a couple of weeks. I've been, we're still kind of working out some of the details with that, but uh, yeah, I'm really excited. You know, I have no idea. I've never run longer than 30 miles. Um, by the time this comes out, you can probably check on Instagram to see how I did. So the goal is definitely to go further than that. And uh, yeah, I just, I love that I've been given my health back. You know, I love that I went from being anxious and sad and in a terrible job that I hated to doing something that I enjoy and my body's healthy and I'm a happier person. Like everything shifted when I shifted how I feel with my body. And so like, that's my ultimate goal is just that people can hear this message, you know, and I've said on other podcasts too, like I have no stock in what you do. Like if you want to, if you want to eat cookies and cake the rest of your life, that's amazing. If you want to eat just tofu, that's totally fine. You know, you're an adult, you need to do what makes sense for you. But I wish when I was struggling that people said like, Hey, this is an option. This is an option that can, that can keep you healthy. So that's my goal with my book is to present an option to present the evidence and just to share my story. Yes, and that's so inspiring because there are so many people right now, especially this year during the pandemic, that are reevaluating their purpose in life, their careers, and just realigning with themselves. And when you align with yourself, everything just seems to come together. And at this point in the podcast, I can almost bet that there's a bunch of people that are listening right now that you pique their curiosity regarding... Uh, vegetables and meat products and the different nutrition profiles and how they're absorbed. Uh, because I know for me, I used to think that vegetables were the most nutrient dense food that I could be eating, when in fact, it could possibly be meat, which is more bioavailable and a better nutrient profile. And I was just wondering if you could speak to, uh, just for the layperson, the difference in the nutrient profiles. Uh, between those and how they're absorbed Uh, because I think that's a really important point yeah absolutely so you know I like to use the analogy too that you know the human body is like you want to think of the human body as like a supercomputer like it needs the correct input to give you the correct output you know and um, we've made maybe that's another big misconception and I feel like we've done a really poor job in nutrition of teaching people that like just because something had like something's on a nutrition label or a product has this certain amount, like let's give the example of, you know, iron and spinach, you know, just because it has six milligrams per cup, that does not mean that's how much your body can absorb and use, you know? And what happens, you know, is the human body, once again, it really needs um, what nutrition can aligns with human physiology, meaning what what is our system, our, our GI tract, our stomach acid, like what, what can it actually take, break up and utilize? And, you know, we've been taught for so many years that vegetables are great. They have all these antioxidants and all this good stuff. 
And when you look at the research, you know, I have, I'm going to cite a few clinical trials in my book. They had people eat, you know, up to 10 pounds of fruits and vegetables a day, and they measured their levels. You know, the goal of the study, actually, when they were having people eat these um, that amount of fruits and vegetables, was they wanted to show when you ate that much fruits and vegetables, it was good for your body. It was it was preventing damage. And, you know, they measured people all these different levels. And what they found was like, yep, it's it's there. We can see the vitamin A and the things that are in vegetables. But it's not actually doing anything. It's not. It's not preventing oxidation. It's not preventing inflammation, you know. And um, they did another study we'll cite in the book where it wasn't until people actually removed the fruits and vegetables that they were actually able to. Their bodies actually responded and were able to heal. Um, and so it really bioavailability. Bioavailability once again is what can my body take, utilize, and absorb, you know. Because once again, if I write you a check for $1,000 and I only have 17 in my bank account, it doesn't help you, you know. Um, and we just have different, There, we, we have, once again, we haven't done a good job of, um, you know, iron and vegetables is non-heme. Uh, iron and meat is heme. Um, the, the vitamin K in leafy greens versus vitamin K and like things like liver and stuff is very different. They are not, they are not the same molecule and your body does not recognize them the same. So your body does not utilize and absorb some, you know, one as well as it does the other. And these are just facts. These are non-negotiable facts. That doesn't mean that you can't get some vitamin K from vegetables and the, or some calcium from kale or some iron from spinach, but you, but often it's not nearly enough for health, you know? So that is, um, that's something that, you know, as people are listening to this, you know, I, I love, you know, you to just kind of think in your own mind, like, you know, have I really felt good and energized? And even when I'm eating all these these salads and these other vegetables, you know, how, how do I feel? Would it make sense for me to, to try to add some protein or to, you know, add some of those other things that could potentially provide a little bit more nutrition as far as vitamins and minerals go? Yes. And you've definitely given us a lot of food for thought <laughs> with your, with your commentary and research and you have a book coming out. And I was just wondering if you could let our listeners know the name of the book and kind of what, the book is about and when it will be out. Absolutely. So it's called The Dietitian's Dilemma because I felt like that's really what I had this year. And, you know, one of the main reasons I left healthcare is, you know, we have, we're taught these options. We're taught that we have to have the standard American diet, all these grains, but what about a really low carb diet or what about a moderate carb diet? So I kind of had this dilemma, like, how do I, how do I get this information out? What actually is the best way to eat? Does it depend? You know, um, and so the the book is going to go through, you know, well, first of all, it'll have my story, you know, and you got a little glimpse of my story in the Reader's Digest. It's a little more, you know, involved. Um, and then it's going to go through diabetes, um, mental disorders, eating disorders. And once again, like those two, mental disorders and eating disorders are very hot topics for, for people. I think it, talking about food specifically around eating disorders can be very frustrating and triggering. So, um, you know, I want to validate that, but I'm also going to pull out a lot of research and, you know, have some good discussion. And then it's going to, we're going to talk about um, sarcopenia, which is muscle wasting and how essential protein is. And we're going to talk about heart disease because there's a lot of fear around um, low carbohydrate diets because people are very afraid that meat and fat cause heart disease and cause cancer. We don't address cancer in the book. Who knows? Maybe, maybe a second book will do that. Um, and then we're going to have a whole chapter on where in the world do these nutrition guidelines come from? Because it's very in-depth. We talked a little bit about it today. And then, then we're going to, you know, give you guys, how do you get started? Like, where do I go? Okay, point me in the right direction. 
And then I'll have a chapter on just a little bit more about what I do for running. And we've got 22 testimonies um, in there from people before and after pictures, uh, coaches, people, the health coaches, dietitians, doctors, if you, that are all, you know, wanting to answer your questions, wanting to work with you guys if you're interested. Um, and I have a, a lot of graphics I'm really excited from um, a woman named Kate. And I have a foreword being written by uh, the lovely and talented Nevada Gray. So I'm very, uh, I'm elated to have you write my foreword. So um, I think it's going to be good. I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm hopeful that it can give hope. You know, I think right now more than anything, we need to be lifting each other up. We need hope. And for anyone whose health is struggling, this is not going to be the rinky dink, same old diet book. This is really going to dive in and challenge the current dogma. And it's probably going to ruffle some feathers. And that's a good thing. Yes, because I think part of building confidence in making changes in your personal health and being able to speak with your doctor about what these options are really resides in understanding the history and what the evidence is actually showing us and the direction that the evidence is leading us. And more and more um, now you see scientists and, and doctors really speaking up uh, about this and researching it more and trying to answer those questions, you know, wh where did we go wrong? What can we do better? And I think your book is going to give an amazing commentary and overview of this uh, so people can truly educate themselves as to the options uh, that are out there. So for our listeners uh, that want to follow your journey um, after listening to this episode, where can they find you? Yeah, so right now I'm on Instagram at, it's all one word, run, eat, meet, repeat. So run, eat, meet, repeat. And on Twitter at Michelle Hearn, my last name, H-U-R-N-R-D. And there should be a website coming relatively soon uh, with a little bit more information about the book. And the goal for the book right now is to be published and available on Amazon either um, the end of this year, so December 2020, or very, very early next year. So that's still a little bit in flex, but we're getting really close. So I'm very excited about that. Yes. So guys, make sure you follow Michelle. And thank you so much for your time today and coming on our podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast. We are now available on iHeart Podcast and all of your favorite podcast listening platforms. As always, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. If you're interested in being a guest on our podcast, send us an email. Link in the show notes.